0: It's a real blessing and privilege for me to be here with you this morning. It's been a couple years since I've had an opportunity to be here and worship the Lord with you all at Hebron. Although, just a few months back, we had an opportunity to have Tim come down and, and fill the pulpit for me at Bethel. And afterwards, feedback was great. People said, we loved that Tim guy. Just, I wish you could get excited about something sometimes. And I said, well, that's Tim. You just... Thank you, Tim, for that, but uh, it's good to be here, and uh, Doug told me again before the service, he said, and remember, this is a, a little more casual one, so go ahead and uh, take your jacket off, and we've got a, a chair with a padded back for you if you want, and I thought, I just, if I fell asleep during my own sermon, that would just be embarrassing, so we're going to avoid that as best we can, but I do want to spend some time opening up the Lord's Word with you and, and just presenting ourselves before our God and offering our praise to Him, and Barrett, thanks for leading us in an early time of that. There's a... a A question really that maybe I want us to face together today and it's one of the most common but one of the most haunting questions that we can find in scripture and because of that I think it's one of the most relevant questions that we can find in scripture. I lift up my eyes to the hills the psalmist says where does my help come from? That's a fair question, and there are no shortage of things that cause us to ask questions like that. I look around me, God, where does my help come from? I see world changing events, things like uh, the floods and devastations that have been happening in India recently, like the tornadoes that have struck the Midwest just a few weeks back, like uh, an ongoing state of civil war in Syria, bankruptcy in Europe, riots in Brazil. There are no shortage of things that we can look at. And if it's not something that's impacting you on a global scale, it may be something that has shocked your world to the very core. The death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the beginning of cancer. What has ignited this kind of question in your heart? Because it can very quickly turn into just an inferno of uncertainty. Lord, where does my help come from? Now, maybe you didn't even know that that question was there, but maybe when you heard somebody else give voice to it, you finally recognized that it was resident already in your own heart. It's a bit of an accusation on one hand. It's also something of a desperate plea. God, what's going on around here? Who's in charge? Is there a place that I can find shelter and security in the midst of these storms? The great truth of Scripture and what I want to look at with you today is that we do and can find shelter from from all unrest in the arms of the Most High. He is the one who will cause all to be still and peaceful one day. But in the meantime, he is the one who shepherds and protects his loved ones. He is the one who will make himself known to all nations, who will be exalted by all peoples, Scripture says. Rest assured, there is security and shelter. To help us look at that, I want to look at uh, Psalm 46 with you. And I don't don't know, it looks like it'll be up behind me. I'm going to read it here. If you've got a a personal Bible or or anything like that, though, I, I always encourage you to take that out as well. Open that up as we read this, but then leave it open in front of you as we dig into God's Word together here today. But I'll begin by reading Psalm 46 and ask you to listen to the Word of God. God is our refuge and strength. is our fortress. This is the word of our God. Will you pray with me before him? Majestic God, you speak to us in the midst of chaos, and you call to us in the midst of fear. Allow us to hear your voice clearly today and to be drawn into deeper fellowship with you through your spirit. And Father, I pray that my own weak words would not get in the way of your powerful message, but that you use this time to speak to us all by your living word and the power of your spirit. It's in the matchless name of Jesus, the Christ, we pray. Amen. A couple years ago, I saw uh, Leno on The Tonight Show, the first time around that he was on there. And he does that bit sometimes where he pulls out headlines and there are typos or omissions or something that's kind of funny. And he pulled out a section from a local newspaper that had uh, the religious listings for the churches in the area. Their services, times, sermon titles and whatnot for the day. And in the corner there was a church and their service began at 11 o'clock. And the sermon title for that Sunday was, Oh God, Where Are You? And just a couple blocks over and a block or two down, there was another church in the area. It had its address and sermon and its uh, service time. And the sermon title there for that Sunday is, God is with us. And so I think I knew where I'd be attending that Sunday. <clears throat> but that's a question that comes up too. We might wonder where God is when we face this nearly endless list of things that, that causes us to concern or that drives us to doubt or that even fuels our fear. God, where are you? I lift up my eyes to the hills and I see these things around me. I see, as the psalmist talks about, uh, raging geological forces even that, that are outside the scope of our control. He said, the mountains totter, the seas and oceans roar. We see devastation like this that happens a lot. Natural disasters, we're being told that perhaps they're going to become a little more common. I don't know if that's true, but it's obvious that there are devastating forces out there that are simply beyond our ability to manage. Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes. Sin has so corrupted the very fabric of creation that Paul says in Romans 8, creation itself groans and cries out to be freed from its bondage. We look around us and we see uh, massive unrest in, on the socio-political front. It said that in our psalm, it said that uh, nations rage and kingdoms totter. And very interestingly, uh, the psalmist uses the exact same words to describe that. The oceans rage, nations rage, mountains totter, kingdoms totter. He says everything is, seems to be coming unhinged. And we can see that as we look around. We see uh, things like the Arab Spring, riots in Brazil... Just unrest in our own country. We see societies and institutions that, that uh, end up cannibalizing themselves mercilessly because of this strife. We see things that hit us on a very personal level. Lingering, pervasive uncertainty that comes from, from economic distress. Here's the catch. None of these are new things. None of these are things that God's people have not faced in every age and in every place. Psalm 46 uh, people are, are somewhat divided. Some people believe that it was written to address a specific situation in Israel at a particular time. Uh, and that could be true. It talks about an earthquake. We know that there was an earthquake during the reign of King Uzziah, uh, prophets uh, Isaiah and, or Amos and Zechariah rather talk about that. So we know it could be referring to that. It talks about uh, political strife. We know throughout scripture that God used the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Philistines to, to uh Uh, sometimes serve his purposes but there was unrest right there so it could be referring to specific things in that setting it also and this is evidence i think of god's wisdom and providence uh, can just be speaking to general truths of the human experience that we look around us and see unrest and uncertainty and difficulty And the power of these things, let's be honest with ourselves here, can be very startling sometimes. It can be very severe. It can be scary. It can be downright savage at times, but it is always subordinate to the power of our God. That's what this psalm is all about. That's the truth that this psalm is trumpeting and celebrating. Even if we don't see it or trust it in the ways that we should, God sits enthroned, Above the roaring and raging and tottering of this world and he is the one to whom we turn in times of trial or tribulation because he alone can address it effectively and that's also what this psalm gets into that God here, here's maybe the main idea I want to communicate this first part with the psalm God addresses the surging strife with sovereign stillness verse 10 says that and that may be a favorite verse it could be a memory verse I' probably learned it when I was young at some point, be still and know that I am God, we hear. And, and we often think of that as sort of a, a polite invitation to uh, some contemplative reflection, God just patting us on the back and saying, be still and know that I am God. And that's an okay translation, I think. If you look at the Hebrew, though, a little more closely, I think a better translation would be something like this. Knock it off and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in this earth. This is not an insipid or ineffective plea coming from a desperate creator. This speaks with unrivaled authority, with unmitigated power. It is not really all that polite. Now, when I cry out for peace and stillness, I can't even get my dog to listen to me. God speaks stillness into the cosmos, and they listen and they respond to the voice of their maker. Stop it, he says. The God who spoke the universe into being is the God who speaks a word of peace and calmness into it. Be still, he says, and know that I am God. And and like many places in Scripture, knowledge there is not a body of intellectual facts or trivia. It's an experiential reality. Know that I am God. Experience that in all its fullness. Be still, he says, as the waters roar and the mountains fall. Creation itself, I already mentioned in Romans 8, says, groans, looks forward, stands on tiptoe to see God's coming Messiah's return. And we saw a preview of that in Mark 4. You know the story. Jesus is on the boat with the disciples. He's sleeping. The storms are going. The disciples are getting nervous. They wake him up. What does he say? Peace. Be still. That's a preview. That's Jesus Christ not only revealing his own divinity by speaking the words that God speaks to creation, but by showing us what will happen in his return. Be still, God says, to the raging of an unrestful world. And be still, God says, to the unrest of a political and social world that comes simply unglued at times. There's a famous verse in Isaiah that says, He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation anymore, nor will they train for war. That's actually uh, quoted in Joel 3 and Micah 4. We find that four places in the Old Testament. We also find it inscribed on the walls of the UN building in New York. The scripture references are the more important ones. God says, be still. And God doesn't just hope for peace. He makes peace. That's not, again, a a desperate plea or wishful thinking from our Lord. Be still. Stop, he says. Maybe here's a place to just add something about biblical peace. Peace, the concept of peace, biblically speaking, is not the absence of conflict alone, but the presence of healing wholeness. So it's not just the absence of conflict. It's not just a neutral state. It is the presence of healing, wholeness. Be still, God says to creation. Be still, God says to the unrest of the socio-political world. Be still, God even says to our own hearts, as we are faced with physical needs, economic concerns. In the Sermon on the Mount, you know Jesus said, "Don't bother saying what should we eat, what should we wear." Your father knows you need those things, Jesus said. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's yet another reminder that God knows our frailties, knows our needs, and can address them in the ways that only a perfect and loving heavenly father could. Where does my help come from? From the Lord who is in control. (laughs) You're never outside of his jurisdiction. Right? he is as the psalm says a a fortress an impregnable city a warrior who defends his people a sovereign lord who's in charge even when we can't see it and our help comes not from our ability to weather the storms but from the might of our god he gives comfort and shelter and peace but here's the next question and this might be the most important one to whom This is something that everyone experiences? Just sort of out there broadly for everyone to know? How do we experience this shelter, this comfort, this security, this peace that God says he and he alone can provide? Experience it in and only in Jesus Christ, the one to whom we cling in faith. Now, that's not explicitly stated here in this psalm but as we read through even other psalms and the rest of scripture this is what is unfurled this is the the unfolding drama that God is revealing to his people the reason that we uh, that I selected the Romans 8 passage a little earlier that Doug read is because there is where we see it on high definition display and Paul says what, what can we say in response to this if God's for us who can be against us He said, if I am held in the grip of Jesus Christ, what can I possibly fear? Nakedness, danger, famine, sword? He says, in all these things, I'm actually more than a conqueror through him who loved me. I'm maybe even being led like a sheep to the slaughter every day of my life, he said. But there is nothing in all of creation that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. And so when we find these, these very attractive and necessary images of God's shelter and protection, it's important to understand that, that this is not just a blind faith in, in a greater power. This is saving faith in the living God. Maybe this image might help. If you think of someone who, who's outside in uh, freezing temperatures and, and succumbing to hypothermia, it doesn't them no good if they just know that somewhere there is someplace warm. There's a warm place somewhere out there. That does them no good. They need to know where it is, they need to be invited into that place. They need to be brought into that place. They need to be given the warmth that they need in a particular place. Otherwise, the, the general concept is useless. It is useless. This is, I'm I'm gonna be pretty blunt with this. It is useless to think of God providing shelter and security and protection for us in some broad and undefined way that is not rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ's saving work for us. Because that is where we find these things. It's a saving faith that acknowledges the holiness of our God. It's a saving faith that acknowledges our own brokenness and rebellion before Him. We're not just innocent bystanders in a world gone mad, we are complicit in the chaos of this world and the brokenness that is around us. So it's a belief that God did for us what we could never do for ourselves, that the Creator stepped into this creation That he lived the perfect life we could never live. That he died the death that we should have died. That he was raised again in victory as a promise and pledge and foretaste of what we will one day experience in him. That God offers this salvation and security and protection to us in Christ. So that like Paul we can say, what can I possibly be afraid of? Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Because when we turn to him in that way, we find the shelter. And the protection that we need. You know, the uh, National Weather Service has uh, not too long ago put out a, a series of public service announcements. They're, being, they're becoming very frustrated and concerned because they've noticed that uh, there are a lot of people who run to their cars to seek shelter from a tornado. And they say, not only is that ineffective, that's actually one of the worst things you can do. We seek shelter in all sorts of ineffective and dangerous and even deadly places. We think that our our shelter, our comfort, our security would come from our accumulations, possessions, our status, the standing that we have amongst friends and family. Those will change at some point. Those may deteriorate completely. Some point. Then what? A man named Dr. David Burns is a psychiatrist at Stanford University School of Medicine, and he said this We tend to base our self esteem on certain things that we think we need to be worthwhile as human beings, and a lot of us base it on achievement or intelligence or productivity. So when those things start reversing, you begin to feel like less of a person. That's just coming from the psychiatric world. It says, if you don't have those things, you feel untethered and less of a person. Theologically, though, we can say you are not in the security that you could have if you are unanchored or untethered to Jesus Christ. It's not just that you feel less of a person, but you are not in Christ if you are seeking shelter and solace and comfort and protection from things other than him. But that sense of peace and shelter that we have, is something that we can cultivate. And this is another, I think, important idea. It is actually something that we can cultivate. It's not something we create, but it is something that we cultivate. I'm going to say that again, so hopefully it sinks in. We don't create it, but we can cultivate it. There's a great story in in Mark 9 where a man personally witnesses Jesus healing miracles, and his response is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's an acknowledgement that I do believe, and yet there are vestiges of unbelief that I need you to eradicate and get rid of for me. We can cultivate this. We can make intentional efforts to commune with Jesus Christ through prayer, through study of his word, through reflection and meditation on him. And the Psalms are the best thing to do that with. The Psalms are, are really God's prayer book for his people. And so when we begin to immerse ourselves in the Psalms, when we begin to make uh, the rhythms and the language and the passion of the Psalms, even the lament of the Psalms our own, we begin to pray to God in the language that he gave us to do. It becomes something that just saturates our thinking and our focus. What starts is. Probably a a conscious and deliberate and maybe even difficult decision to seek shelter only in the arms of Jesus Christ becomes something that is then just second nature to us. We forsake the fleeing shelter of temporary and unreliable things and we find it in the arms of the Most High. That's how we experience God's shelter and security. But I think the last thing for us to consider on a topic like this is what does that then produce? What does that generate? What are the results of that then, having experienced that? In other words, is this something that God provides to us just so that we can feel a little bit better about ourselves? Is this just a a warm, fuzzy alternative to a world of cold sharpness? Or does this create something and lead to something? The results of knowing This shelter and security that the Lord alone provides for us in Jesus Christ have profound implications. Profound. And I want to consider just a couple of them here briefly with you. When we begin to know God as a sure and certain fortress, as as a city which cannot be shaken, as the one in whom we are protected, we begin then in that way to start to cultivate and develop an eternal perspective, to begin to see things a little differently. Friends of ours have a, a five-acre pond, and I like to take my boys there fishing sometimes, and they, you know, they're still little, so they think that was, that's a really big place. It's a big pond. Last week, we took them out to Lake Tahoe in California. Blew their minds. You begin to see something that just shakes every understanding you have of things. It puts things into completely new perspective. When we begin to see God's eternal perspective on things, It changes the way we look at things now. That's how Paul could say what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Christianity does not turn a blind eye to the struggle and difficulty of life. It looks that struggle and that ugliness right in the face and says triumphantly, there's something bigger and better in store for me in Jesus Christ. It gives us a new and eternal perspective. And that new and eternal perspective actually then can enable us to have joy even in the midst of trial. Joy even in the midst of struggle and uncertainty and unrest. We're never guaranteed safety in this world. But we have security in the Lord. And I've tried hard to distinguish between those terms. We may not be guaranteed safety. Christians, like anyone else, experience tr- uh, struggles and, and trials and persecution and difficulties. The Israelites experience that. But what is not at stake is the eternal security that Christ has achieved for us. And so we look at Christians who uh, are going through persecution and, and difficulty and struggle, and, and, and they don't make it through that simply because they don't know any better. Christians who have joy in the midst of trial aren't just uh, simple-minded or or somehow super believers that you and I aren't. Christians can survive and actually even thrive in the midst of trial and struggle because it's only against the backdrop of that struggle that the brilliance of the gospel shines forth in all its clarity. Think of when you go to a a jeweler and they want to show off their best gems. They put them on a piece of black felt. It's against the blackest backdrop That the brilliance of the gem shows forth. There's something about a faith that is willing to forsake everything else for the purpose of being united to Jesus Christ. That that just shines forth with a brilliance that this world needs to see. That's why Paul could also say in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And somehow uh, the fellowship uh, to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death, and so somehow I might attain the resurrection from the dead. you say, Paul, Paul, why in the world would you say that you want to share in Christ's sufferings and his death? Paul's simple answer would be, because I want to share in his resurrection. Because I want to share in his glory. Because I want to share what he has prepared for those who love him. What no eye has seen, what no mind has comprehended, what no ear has ever heard before. I want to share in that. And so I want to share in Christ's suffering and struggle. Understanding that God is a a source of sovereign security for us gives us an eternal perspective. It can actually produce joy in the midst of trial. And here's the last thing I want to point out with this. This, I think, is really the deepest and truest motivation that we can have for missions. A desire to not only share the knowledge of this peace and shelter but to bring people in to be in that place where they will know that God is exalted in all of the earth. Whether the whole world is a mess or your world is a mess, that is the precise time that the good news of Jesus Christ needs to be announced the most. We're not called to, we're not called to to close our eyes, to tap our ruby slippers together and say, there's no place like heaven, there's no place like heaven, there's no place like heaven. We are in call, called to engage in God's world, to take God's word to the unrest of his world. And and here's maybe where I'll hopefully just link a little bit. To, I know you just did like a 10-month spiritual warfare series. And so I hope what you were not hearing was the last 10 months of, you know, fight the good fight and me saying today, run and hide. That's not, <laughs> that's not it at all we can engage in the spiritual warfare that's out there, only. first of all, only because Christ already has secured the victory. But then we can only even attempt to engage in that, too, because we know that we are secure as we do it. We know that we are held securely as we engage in that. So the chaos chaos that we might see around us cannot... Cannot embarrass believers and cause them to keep their mouths shut. That must be the thing that emboldens believers, causes them to open their mouths to share the good news of the one who provides sovereign security in the midst of the storm. There are storms that can be beautiful and there are storms that can be deadly. There are heavy summer rains that can actually be kind of fun to walk around in sometimes, and and then there are things like Hurricane Katrina. The tumult and the upheavals of this world affect us all. And while we may be able to bear them and tolerate them to different degrees, there will be a time where you are forced to take refuge. And the question then is this. When the storms of this world drive you to seek shelter, where do you turn to find it? In the midst of global unrest, where do we find that shelter? The psalmist says, in the arms of the Most High, the one who will say one day, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth. I will be exalted among the people. Have you heard that? Do you know that God is a sure and certain help in times of trouble as the psalm begins? Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes. Where does my help come from? And he immediately answers, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen.